We're going to find ourselves in chapter 2 of Colossians, looking at verses 6 to 15. 6 and 7 were involved in our last study as well, but I'm going to include them in this topic because I think it goes really well with it. In fact, I, th I think 6 and 7 are going to be our application for today. So if you have your Bibles, please join us in Colossians chapter 2. And I'm titling this lesson, In Christ Alone. In Christ Alone. We've been looking at treasuring Jesus Christ, and we want to keep that theme going because it's all over Colossians. It's really hard to miss. So we're going to look at treasuring Christ this morning, how important that is, and we're going to look at a little bit of the enemy's um, fight against us and talk about how important it is to resist the devil in certain things, and we'll look at that here in a little bit. Have you ever been deceived by anything? Like truly, really deceived? Or have you ever deceived anyone else? Not just lied, but deception. Trying to trick, trying to fool, trying to uh, tr twist and mix somebody up. <laughs> share a little bit of a story here with you about a time that I deceived someone. I have this friend. His name is Josh Wilson. He is a lifelong friend of mine. I've been friends with Josh ever since I was in uh, junior high. Josh Wilson is my lifelong best friend. Well, Josh Wilson made it, made it aware early on that he was a big fan of something you guys may have heard of, Star Wars. Yes, Luke apparently joins Josh in that. Well, I'm, I'm going to make you sad today, Luke, unfortunately. I'm not into Star Wars. Yeah, yeah, you guys already hired me, though, so it's too late. Um, you know what? It's not really Star Wars, though. It's, it's kind of science fiction. I'm not really into the science fiction theme. I don't get it. I don't, I, I don't really work with things that don't have boundaries and laws set up. And I told Janine, when we watch a science fiction, it's like anything can go at any time, and you can't question it. Like, all of a sudden, there's a flying giraffe holding a missile. And it's like, yeah, that's part of the story. It's like, okay. So I was never really into science fiction much, but Josh made it aware early on that he was really into Star Wars. So I didn't tell him that I wasn't. He never asked if I was, but he just assumed that I, too, was really into Star Wars. So for 15 years, I lied to Josh. But it's one of those good lies, at least that's the way I justified it growing up, that Josh didn't know that I didn't like Star Wars, so I just didn't let him know that I didn't like Star Wars. So Josh and I would hang out. I had never seen the old Star Wars, so it wasn't even based on knowledge. It's just I didn't like science fiction, didn't like that kind of stuff. So uh, I'd never seen the old ones. Josh assumed that I had, and so he brought up Star Wars in topics conversation, and I would fake it. I, I would just say names I heard one time, and it's like, yeah, R2-D2. He's like, okay, you're with me. <laughs> and uh, he would have these Star Wars video games that I would play with him, and not, not hard to fake that, of course, but... So Josh, for a long, long time, thought that I shared his love for Star Wars. Big deal, right? Maybe you do that with friends anyways. Big deal. Well, this kind of came out, unfortunately. Um, my lovely wife is back there. I have to share a little bit of a story here, including this. Um, so Josh, I moved to Michigan to do ministry, and Josh lives in Michigan at, at the time with his family. And I start dating. In fact, I think we were engaged at that point, Janine and I. And so they decide to have Janine and I over for dinner just to get to know Janine better. Well, Janine knew my real thoughts on things like Star Wars and science fiction. And I should have told her that I had this 15-year lie going, but I didn't. And so <laughs> they, take, they bring us over for dinner. And as it happens a lot with Josh, Star Wars just kind of organically comes into the conversation somehow. And Janine, so innocently, just pure innocence, says, oh, Todd hates Star Wars. <laughs> the look of betrayal on my friend is something that is cemented in my mind. His jaw just opened and goes, what? He goes, are you kidding me? I didn't even share one detail of the story. I moved too fast. Do you remember when the newer ones came out? There were the old ones like in the 70s, and then the newer ones came out, and there were like three of those, and I think there's even more now. But there were newer ones, right? And then the second one came out, and Josh said, hey, Todd, you know what's a good thing to do? We should go to opening night and watch Star Wars. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's a great plan, Josh. So I did. 
So I went to Josh opening night of the Star Wars and uh, everyone's dressed up. People are cheering. And in their company is somebody who's not only not seen the old Star Wars at all, doesn't even like it. And Josh is thrilled. He's having the time of his life. And I didn't have the heart to tell him I don't like Star Wars. But it was found out, as I told you before. Janine so innocently tells Josh, I don't like Star Wars. And Josh, from that point on, just, I, I don't know. He just, we, we weren't the same. And we're still friends. We're still close. I'm just teasing. But 15-year deception came out so abruptly. It was like, oh. And the funny thing is, is I think he forgot again. I think he still thinks I like it. I don't, like, maybe it didn't, like, maybe he dreamt it or something like that. Because I've had conversations with him where he still thinks I'm into it. Anyways, I'll share one more quick story of deception. Uh, when I was in college, Luke, you'll find this out here when you go to college here in the fall. Uh, sometimes when you go to college, you get bored. It shouldn't happen because you have so many studies and so many things to do. But sometimes you just get bored and you try to find ways to fill the boredom. Well, I was kind of like a, I don't know if I'd call it class clown, but it was definitely there a little bit. So I was kind of like a leader back in the day to get people to do funny, weird stuff. So I decided, we went to this underground cafe, which was kind of new back then, Luke. But now it's, you know, now it's a big campus hangout. And back in the day, it was too. People hung at the underground cafe quite a lot. But it's a small cafe. You go there and, you know, it's close proximity. Well, I went there with a couple of my friends. And we decided we were going to play a little bit of a prank on people. We decided to, we were going to make up a card game called Jack in the Pocket. Anyone ever played Jack in the Pocket? Yeah, not surprising. doesn't exist. Um, we were going to make up a card game called Jack in the Pocket and try to trick people into thinking it was a real game. But this Jack in the Pocket game wasn't just a card game. It involved dice and a flipping of a coin and a couple other random things. It was just neither here nor there. So my friends Josh, Andy, and myself sit down at a table at the Underground Cafe. We break out our cards. We break out our dice and our coins, and we start playing this made-up game called Jack in the Pocket, which has absolutely no rules. Sorry, it has one rule. The same thing can't happen twice. That's our only rule with Jack in the Pocket. So we started playing this game called Jack in the Pocket, and as part of the prank, we're really excited about Jack in the Pocket. And like I told you, it's a close proximity in the Underground Cafe, so if you're excited about something, someone's going to notice. And that was the plan, that someone would notice. So we start playing this game called Jack in the Pocket, which has no rules, nothing happens twice. Uh, we, we each have like 15 cards before us. It's so strange. And we're flipping, we're flipping the coin. We're rolling dice. We're having the time of our life. And somebody eventually came up to us and said, hey, what are you guys playing? It looks kind of fun. I was like, oh, we're playing Jack in the Pocket. And the guy goes, I've never heard of that. And I said, what? You've never heard of Jack in the Pocket? And he's like real ashamed. He's like, I'm sorry. Yeah, I've never played it before. I was like, dude, you're missing out. You've got to play Jack in the Pocket with us. So he said, okay, yeah, I'll play a hand or two. He said, how do you play? I said, you know what's best? Why don't you just sit down with us and we'll play a few hands and you'll pick it up. You'll get the understanding of Jack in the Pocket very quickly. Well, the problem with Jack in the Pocket is nothing happens twice. It never happens again. And the things are very outlandish. Like at one point, my friend rolled the dice and it came to snake eyes. And he said, you know what that means? And he switched seats with me. And the guy watching it is like, what? What is this game? Another time, one of my friends leaned over and grabbed half of my cards, and he said, I'm going to use one of my two confiscates. Just grabbed my deck. I was like, okay. So we're playing this game called Jack in the Pocket, and I eventually said to this kid, I said, do you get it? Are you starting to understand the rules? He goes, I don't think so. It's going to take a few more hands. I was like, that's okay. Take your time. One more element of this game, this, this girl came up, same kind of thing. She saw us excited about Jack in the Pocket. She wanted to play, so she, I, I said the same thing to her. I said, sit down. You'll learn the rules just by watching us. Well, eventually, she, she starts playing. She starts getting into there. and Like, okay, she starts doing stuff she saw us do. And uh, <laughs> the funniest thing about this is toward the end of the game, which really there is no end of the game. There's no way to win Jack in the Pocket. But we, we, we kind of made this plan that, okay, this is done. The prank's over. It went well. You know, let's, the game's close to being done. Well, at the end of the game, this girl starts to argue with us that she won. And I was like, because we were saying, hey, Josh, good game. You won. Clearly won. You, man, you knocked this out of the park. And the girl goes, no, I think I won. And I'm like, oh, yeah? <laughs> Why is that? She goes, yeah, I, I had the most cards. I flipped the most snake eyes. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> 
So I start laughing. I, put, I start putting my face into my hands just laughing at, because I realized we had hit the pinnacle of comedy here. This girl is arguing with us that she won a made-up game that has no rules. And uh, we never told her. So we, we made her feel good that she at least played a good game. Maybe she didn't win, but she, she played a good game. So those are a couple stories of my deception, uh, whether those are good or bad stories. That's an evidence of someone being deceived by something, okay? We want to look at um, that as an element today. If you look at your Bibles now, I want to read verses 6 to 15. What we're going to do is with verses, verses 6 and 7, we're going to read them, but then we're going to take them and, and hold them on for the, for the end of the application here. But follow along as I read Colossians 2, verses 6 to 15. It says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, Christ, having forgiven, all, forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That's the text today. We've been talking about treasuring Christ, not just knowing Christ, not just being compelled to follow Christ, but even higher, treasuring Christ. And so I want to keep that theme today as we title the lesson here, Christ in Christ alone. In Christ alone. And maybe you're starting to see that theme open itself up in Colossians, where Paul is putting so much emphasis and strong verbiage into the person of Jesus Christ. So we're seeking to raise the bar here for all of us in this culture to treasure Christ Jesus. And I told you, verses 6 and 7 we're going to get back to. I want to start here with verses 8. It's right there in your sheet if you have it. Look at verse 8. It says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. I put some of the definitions of the words there in that sentence right below there if you want to look at those. But Paul says, Don't be taken prisoner by any other understanding than Christ. Anything. Do not be taken captive by philosophy, by empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Paul is trying to show us that Christ is everything. And I know academically, we know that. We all know that and would attest to that, that Christ is everything. But Paul is trying to say to us today, you need to live that way. Because if you are deceived by, by the devil, you're going to actually follow something else, at least a little bit. And that's going to be a slippery slope. I want to talk about our opponent here. I want to talk about the devil. Um, I don't think it happens a lot. I think that's kind of a dangerous thing to do. People think it's a dangerous thing to talk about the devil. But you know, in sports games, um, when they're trying to play an opponent, you know what they do? They watch tape on their opponent. Strengths are and what their weakness here, which is the devil, and some of his wiles, some of his pitfalls that he throws at us, so we can be protected. Because as your pastor, I am now your shepherd. You're my flock in a way, and I need to look out for you people because the devil is trying to deceive, and distract and devalue Christ. And so those are the three things we're going to look at quickly here before we get to the meat of our text, is the threefold plan the devil has to get us to follow something else. Okay? And again, our goal here is to treasure Christ. That's our goal. So remember our goal as we go through these things. 
The three things I'm going to mention are I mentioned already. Distractions, deceptions, like I started the lesson with, and devaluing Jesus Christ. So let's talk about distractions. Satan loves to distract us as people. He does. He will throw anything and everything in our way that will get us to, to take our mind and our vision off of Christ. And really that's what a distraction is, right? You're focusing on something you should, and then someone makes a noise or something looks appealing, and your, your uh, direction is, is put somewhere else. And it's, here's a couple of illustrations of that. If you've ever watched a basketball game on, on TV and a guy shooting a free throw, if you ever seen the crowd behind the glass of the guy shooting the free throw, what are they doing? They're waving their hands. Um, they're making loud noises. I think I saw some guy holding a sign once that said, I'm your son. <laughs> thought that was kind of a creative one. They're trying to distract the guy shooting free throws so that he misses, right? He takes his eyes and his vision off of the goal and looks at the people. Well, that's an idea of, of distraction. Here's another one. Texting while driving. I'm not going to poll the audience whether you do this or not, but it's a very dangerous thing to text and drive, right? There's all kinds of commercials and stuff about it. Where's your focus supposed to be when you're driving? Someone shout it out. It's a really hard question. On the road. Why? Because if you take your vision off of the road, you can crash. You can hurt yourself. You can hurt other people. So people have told us and warned us, do not text while you drive. Keep your vision, keep your focus upon the road. Do not be distracted by the little ding in your ear that says, I'm very important. Come watch, come watch me and listen to me. Keep your vision upon the road. And the devil is very much like that. He's trying to distract us. Because distraction is kind of subtle. Sometimes the devil will open us to blatant sin if he can, if he can pull it off. He's going to put blatant sin in our way and just say, go after it. But sometimes he takes a more subtle approach because he knows we won't always follow blatant sin. So what he needs to do is he needs to make some noise. He needs to make other things look attractive. So we'll eventually take our vision off of Christ and look at that other stuff. That's the idea of distraction. And I want to look at a few things that I believe the devil does to distract us. Some things he may use to distract us. Let's look at number one. Earthly pleasures and comforts is a big tool the devil uses to distract us by saying things like this. Hey, over here, this is cool. This will make you feel good. A lot of people are doing this and having fun doing this. Why don't you too dive into this as well? Earthly pleasures and comforts are all around us. They're, we're inundated by, by the media telling us we need all of these things. All of these things are attractive. And are, are they wrong? No, most of them are not wrong. But you can tell what the devil is doing. He's trying to distract us. And he knows he's trying to distract us. The devil is not an idiot. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's calculated. He's intentional. And he's going to put things in our way that grab our attention and take it off of Jesus Christ. So the devil doesn't actually believe that what he's distracting us with is of value. He knows that if he can convince us it's of value, we'll do the rest of the work. So earthly pleasures and comforts, if he can make those things look very appetizing, we'll do the rest of the work, won't we? We'll just follow those things, chase those things, and little by little, we'll drift from Christ. I know this because that's my entire testimony. I was a Christian since I was five years old, and at age 25, I was a very distracted individual, very distracted, running and chasing anything and everything that made me feel good and not the treasure of Christ Jesus. So that's number one. Number two, fears and insecurities. Fears and insecurities. Things like, oh, you can't do that. That's scary. Oh, what if you get hurt? Oh, what if you're lonely? What if this costs you a lot? And he, he plays on our insecurities, and I'll use my, myself as, as, as an example here again. When I was thinking about ministry growing up, because my whole family was in ministry, I eventually had to consider going, well, maybe I need to go into ministry. But the devil really focused me upon my own insecurities. Honestly, guys, this kind of thing, standing before you teaching the Bible, scared me to death. I didn't want to do it. I said, I'm going to be horrible at it. I, I can't do it. I'm not built for it. That's not my gift. So the devil played on a lot of those insecurities and said, you're right, Todd. It's not for you. You're not built for ministry. 
showing me all my fears and my weaknesses and my insecurities. So I would eventually say, well, then I'm not doing it. I'm going to chase something else. And I did for a long time. I chased the things I thought I wanted to do. And I said to ministry, you're, you're not with me. You're not a part of me. And it's because the devil was highlighting my fears and my insecurities. Do you remember Moses? He did that with Moses too. God called Moses to do this great thing and go to Egypt and, you know, fight for his people. And Moses said, I'm not the guy you're looking for. I'm not good with speech. You know, God, no, you have the wrong guy. And so Moses eventually convinces God to bring Aaron along so Aaron can be his mouthpiece. And the devil does that all the time. He focuses you on your insecurities and your fears for whatever it is. It could be ministry. It could just be stepping out on faith. And he says to you, what if that limb breaks that you step out on? What if things don't go well? What if you fall? What if you're shamed? You don't want to do that, do you? Why don't you stay back here where it's comfortable and it's secure and you know how it's going to play out? Because he knows that when we follow Christ, Christ will support us. But if he can make us think about our own fears and insecurities, we can be convinced that we're not good enough and we can't do it. And we won't follow Christ the way he desires. The next one is forgetfulness and neglect. Forgetfulness and neglect. I noticed about forgetfulness that it's, it's kind of something no one chides you for. You know, like if you miss a meeting you're supposed to be at and they're like, hey, where were you? And you're like, ah, I forgot. It's like, oh, no big deal. You know, you forgot. We all forget things. Forgetfulness and neglect is a very subtle approach from the devil to distract us from Jesus Christ. Have you ever gone several days or weeks without reading your Bible? And then you realize, whoa, that's been a long time. How did that happen? How did you forget to eat spiritually? Sometimes I forget to eat physically, and Janine thinks that's funny. I just forget about a dinner or a meal I'm supposed to eat. She doesn't understand that, but sometimes I just forget to eat. <laughs> uh, isn't that a great diet plan? Just forget to eat. Um, but when we forget to eat spiritually, it has tragic results. We forget to pray. We forget to get in scripture. We forget to be with the church simply by neglect. And the Lord is not our focus any longer. And the devil's getting, he's gaining ground. Forget, neglect, just don't think about it, put other things in our way, make everything else look good, and eventually we start to forget about the Lord. And isn't that really sad that that can happen? Our entire existence that we learned from Colossians 1 is for Jesus Christ, and sometimes we just plain forget about him. Even in one day, even if it's not a long stretch of period, sometimes we just have those days where we forget about Christ. And the last one is other good ambitions, such as school, work, and family. I told you before that sometimes Christ is like this ingredient we have in this big stew pot we stir around, right? Christ is an ingredient. He's, he's a primary ingredient, but we also have a lot of these other things that are important. And we dump them all in, and suddenly Christ is just in the mix. And I want to preface here, not having these things is wrong, or having these things is not wrong, excuse me, but focusing our attention upon them is where we often fall. When school and work and family or make your own list become as important as Christ Jesus, we've fallen. We're slipping. And so the devil loves to do that. He loves this big, we're making this big stew pot. He loves to slide other ingredients up to you and go, that's important too. Don't forget this one. This too is important. Look at the world. You can't not have this thing. You can't not do this thing. And all of a sudden, there's a dozen ingredients in our life that are all very important things. And I know this because I work with young adults. And young adults will often say, hey, how's, your, how's the walk with the Lord going? Well, not great because I've been really busy with my school. It hasn't been going well because I have been low on sleep, so I've been sleeping more. Or I've, I've been really chasing after this job thing I've been going after. And you could tell the focus is not on Christ at that moment. And I understand we have, to, we have to pursue certain things in our life, but never at the cost of Christ. Because when we do that, the devil's gaining ground. He knows what he's doing. And I want to tell you guys that today. His approach is very subtle. It's not often a very big red flag in your life going, whoa, how did I commit that huge sin? 
It's by drifting little by little by little. And you wake up years later going, how did I get here? How am I not the focused individual I once was? And that's his plan, to distract you, to make everything else look important and for you to forget about Christ. And our entire purpose here, again, is to treasure Christ so that school, work, family, things like that are used for Christ. That everything we do is for serving him. There's many other things we could say about distraction, but I want to look now look at the, the big one, which is deception. Like I told you before, deception is different than just a lie. Um, sometimes when my children lie, I know they're lying. Probably often, actually. Um, but I can tell some of my kids are getting good at lying. <laughs> they're becoming now deceivers. Um, they're, they figured out the system and know what to say and know how to act in order to deceive their parents into thinking that something is true. Uh, the classic example of deception comes back from the Garden of Eden. You remember that where, uh, it actually was a blatant lie, but the, the devil deceived Eve into thinking that the, flu, the fruit was pleasurable. Therefore, pleasurable things come from God. Therefore, it's good to eat. That's the train you should follow. The problem is, is the chapter right before that, the Lord told Eve, if you eat of the fruit in the midst of the garden, you will die. In the very next chapter, the devil says to Eve, you will not surely die. Because the Lord knows when you eat the fruit, you'll be, your eyes will be open and you'll be like him. He's the master deceiver. He's doing whatever he can to tell us half-truths, partial truths, or masking the truth so that we will walk square into a lie. First one I thought of is this, the first deception. that I, I, These are things I've been told. I don't know if you can characterize these things in your life, but um, I've been told this many times by the devil. Christ is important, but he's amongst other important things and people in your lives. In other words, you can't follow only Christ. You should follow Christ. He's important. But you can't follow only Christ. Let's be realistic here. We live in America where the most thing you could do is have Christ a, a, a part of your life. That's a, that's a big Christian, right? Who goes to church and reads their Bible occasionally. But let's, let's be honest. No one really, truly only follows Christ. But if you look at the, uh, the New Testament where Jesus calls the first disciples, I'm very convicted by that. Because when he called Peter, James, and John, these, they got these, these guys to catch the biggest, largest catch of fish they ever caught. Jesus helped them do that. And these guys were fishermen by trade. So they caught this huge catch of fish, and then Jesus said to them right at that point, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And you know what these guys did? They dropped their nets. They dropped their poles. They quit their job, and they followed Jesus Christ. And I'm looking at that going, man, that was not my testimony. <laughs> not for a long time. It was kind of like, Christ, where can I squeeze you in? We'll make room for you. Why don't you make your way into this house, and we'll find you a chair. You know, yeah, there's not a chair right now, but I'll clear up some space for you. And then eventually you find a, a space for Jesus Christ. You sit him down and you put him next to other important things in your life. And then you go, okay, we're all comfortable now. But when Jesus calls you, he says to you, follow me. Follow me and everything else will fall away. Everything else will be seen through the lens of following Christ. And the first deception the, Lord, the devil tells us is that Christ cannot be singularly followed. The next one kind of goes along with it. Christ expects devotion, but he understands when life gets busy. Anybody ever heard the term crazy busy? I hear that a lot with young adults. I'm crazy busy. and They're talking to someone who has five kids. And it's in full-time ministry. And they're telling me they're crazy busy because they have to read two things for school. It's like, okay, you're crazy busy. Um, but crazy busy, we're all under, we all understand that if we're busy, we're productive, right? Busyness equates productivity. But the devil knows what he's doing there. By busying up our life, we suddenly don't really devote ourselves to Christ. Not permanently, not truly. And I know what this is like. I know what it's like to say to the Lord, Lord, if you made my life less busy, 
you and I would have more time together. If you just uh, allowed me a little bit more money or a little bit more time and opportunity and made these things a little bit easier, you and I would have more time together. And I'm putting it upon Christ when it's really supposed to be upon me to follow him and devote myself to him. And the devil tells us this all the time. He expects devotion, but life gets busy sometimes, right? And, and here's the thing about busyness. It never goes away. Have you noticed that? That you have a busy summer because it's summer. And you're traveling and you've got a lot of things to do. And, and then it's like, well, summer's busy. Once I get to fall, you and I will buckle down. But then fall comes and it's like, well, the kids are in school. You know, and I'm running to and fro. we got soccer practice. It's just a crazy season. You know, once, once Thanksgiving and Christmas break come, then you will buckle down, Christ. And then Thanksgiving and Christmas come. And it, it just goes on and on and on until we find ourselves, like I mentioned before, neglecting the most important treasure we have ever, ever known, Christ Jesus. Going on, we're going to move here quickly here. Christ, ex Christ desires obedience and holiness, but he's willing to forgive. So just try your best. Being truly holy is impossible. It doesn't sound like a lie. I mean, this is the whole point. If you read that, it's like, yeah, that, that makes sense. Christ desires obedience and holiness, but he's willing to forgive, to, so just try your best. The problem is it's a lie, and Scripture proves that. In 1 Peter 1.16, you know what it says? As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Do you see where the bar is? The bar is astronomical. It's way up here. And God does that on purpose, purpose so we chase something higher and greater than what we are. And the devil likes to bring that bar way down and go, wait a minute. Is this really possible for you to be holy and really obedient? It's not possible. So let's bring it down to a comfortable level so you can walk over that bar. And God's willing to forgive you anyways. So even if you don't follow Christ, even if you don't devote yourself entirely to Christ, forgiveness is waiting at the door. And there is truth to that. God is willing to forgive, isn't he? But is forgiveness ever a license to be not devoted to Christ? The last one. These are all kind of interconnected. Look around you. Who is really, truly devoted to Christ in this culture? Just go the speed of traffic and you'll be fine. You can be Christian without being radical. Who is? Who do you know that really is biblically following Christ, like Paul and Peter and those guys? That's a tough question, right? I know Christians. I know a lot of people who love Christ, and I see them by loving others and, and practicing obedience. But when I look into Scripture, I'm incredibly convicted by these guys because I think sometimes I've been impacted by the culture more than I have the Bible. And I consider, I told Janine this the other day. I said, I, I consider myself a pretty uh, devoted Christ follower, but I think if you took me and planted me in a third world country where there's persecution, I might look very lukewarm. And I think the culture is impacting us more than the Bible. The Bible says follow Christ. The Bible says give yourselves to Christ. Jesus said to him, if you're not willing to give me everything, it's best not to come at all. And every time I look at Jesus' call to discipleship, it's like, Jesus, you're not a very good salesman. You know, you should be talking about all the great things of Christianity. And Jesus is saying things like, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom. Or if you want to follow me and bury your dad and get married, uh, there's the door. I'm not looking for part-time. And it's like, Jesus, that's not a very good salesman. You should be telling people that you'll accept anything and everything they can give. And Jesus is like, that's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for devotion. I'm looking for commitment. I'm looking for radical obedience. And this is why we have to say these things, because the devil is the one attacking us. And it seems like the devil, not blatantly, he's our buddy. He's got a lot of cool things to offer us. He's, he's really offering us a lot of joy and happiness. But what he's really doing is slowly killing us. He is, by distracting and deceiving. And the last one, we'll move very quickly through this as well, is devaluing Christ devaluing Christ, where we start living for cheaper and lesser things. Rivals. 
add-ons, substitutes for Christ, before we eventually walk away from him. When Christ becomes part of Christianity instead of the whole, he's devalued. When Christ becomes part of Christianity instead of the whole of Christianity, he's devalued. It was never meant to be that way. Christ was always meant to be preeminent and supreme. When Christ plus traditions is what equals a great church, he's devalued. Traditions. Now, I have to say I'm incredibly encouraged by this church that I'm, we're a part of now. Um, there's not a lot of traditions, <laughs> and I'm thankful for that. Not that traditions are wrong. Traditions are a good thing. They could be very helpful. But sometimes they just get in the way. And I'll give you an example. I'm just going to ask you a very simple question. What's more important, a dress code or loving our neighbors? And I think some churches have that backwards. By setting up a bunch of rules and, and traditions as if to say, this is how you're godly. And what the devil is actually doing is taking value away from Christ and his commandments. Because Christ never said it's about dress code, did he? He never said it's about traditions. He said it's about loving your neighbor as yourself and loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that's how the devil is doing it. He's devaluing Jesus Christ by putting things up next to Christ. Here's another one. When Christ is equal with other important things and people in our lives, he's devalued. He just is. School and work and family are good things, and I hope I didn't misrepresent what I was trying to say. They're good things. They're just not as good as Christ, are they? They're not as good as Jesus. Let me give you a little illustration here. Um, saw this in a sitcom once. I hope this has never actually happened. But this man's wife was in labor, and he was watching the sports game. <laughs> and uh, the wife was screaming at him, going, I'm in labor, you know? Help me with the child. And he was, he was more focused upon the sports game at that time. That's kind of what we're talking about. That's an illustration of what we're talking about. You forgot the really important thing for something that just simply you thought was important at the time. And the last one, when the standard for following Christ is brought down to a comfortable level, he's devalued. When it becomes about once a week church or 20 minutes a day, the devil is gaining ground. And I have to speak this. It sounds like harsh language, but it's not. I have to speak because the devil is being harsh to us. He's distracting, he's deceiving, and he's devaluing Jesus Christ. So you and I will follow something, anything else. And when we do, you've heard the term slippery slope, right? When you start being distracted and deceived and Christ is devalued, it's a very slippery slope before you whoosh, all the way down the hill. And I thought about that in my, in my own testimony. How did I get this? How did I get to this place? It didn't happen overnight. It didn't. It happened through distractions. It happened through little deceptions, little lies. It happened by devaluing Jesus Christ and making everything else look important. After 20 years of that, I was in no man's land, and I didn't know how to get back. I looked at my life and said, wow, I don't even love Christ. I'm not even following Christ. He's just a relic in my life. He's just something I do on Sunday. And the devil was gaining ground. And I don't want that to happen. We're going to use the rest of our time here to talk about treasuring Christ once again. And I want you to look at the text, okay? I put it on your sheet, so if that's easier for you to follow, then do it that way. But to help us live for Christ alone, look what Paul does for us. He gives, he gives us Christ's resume to encourage us to strive after only him. And again, I'm just going to walk through the text here. Verse 9. For in him, Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In other words, we need nothing besides Christ. If we simply get Christ through faith and obedience, we get everything that God offers. And we do everything that God expects. And I know that's, for a pastor to say that, it's like, yeah, well, you should say that. You're the pastor. You ever have one of those teachers growing up where it's like everything was about math? You know, I had one of these math teachers that he was just so out of touch with everything else. He thought the entire world revolved around math. And that's the way he talked and spoke. Like, math was the most important thing. 
And I, I kept thinking, man, math is not everything, dude. You know, we got English, we got social studies, we got sports, we got lunch. Math is not that great. And this guy was so out of touch. And I think sometimes you think about that with pastors. It's like, okay, you're the pastor. You're supposed to say stuff like this, that Christ is everything, that you should be following only Christ. That's not a pastor's wording. That's God's wording. God's the one who said this. That if we get Christ and if we follow Christ, we get everything. We've been filled in him. That's the next thing. We've been filled in Christ, who is the head of all rule and authority. In Christ, we're not lacking anything. On the contrary, we're filled. Do you remember what David said in the psalm? My cup runneth over. He holds up his cup, his life, his soul to God. And God starts pouring himself through Christ in David's cup. And David's cup can't hold it all. And it runs over. It spills over. In Christ, we're sufficient. We have perfect sufficiency. Christ owns everything. Christ is the treasure of treasures. If we need anything, we can go directly to Christ. But it seems like we need Christ for salvation, but then we need other worldly stuff to supplement that. And that's not scriptural. You have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you've been filled with Christ? Or do you believe, like the devil tells us, there's something lacking in you? You're missing out on something. The world has it. Go get it. Everyone else has it. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. The word circumcision is used three times in one verse. Uh, I want to talk only about the spiritual circumcision. Thank you. Uh, sin had to be amputated in our hearts. And the idea where you're talking about is God took the heart and circumcised that heart. The sin. Removed the power, removed the love for that sin, and took it away. So we no longer have to live for that sinful person. We sing about the chains being gone, right? That's the idea. When God saved us, he unlocked the chains of sin, and now we're free to go. And sometimes we feel like we're still in those chains. Like, I can't be new. I can't live for Christ. I still have all the sinful baggage. Well, maybe it's just a lack of belief. Because what Christ does is he removes the old person, the heart. And the sin that once controlled us is now rendered powerless. It has no power over us any longer. So when sin seems like it has power over us, it's a lie. That's all it is. It's a lie. Unless you haven't been truly regenerated, that's the other thing it could be. But if you're a Christian, if you're following Christ, and you have newness of heart, and sin still seems to own you, it's a lie. You can get up anytime you want and obey. And that's all to Jesus' credit. Next, you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. There's that old man again. You were buried with him in baptism. The old man is dead. The new man is risen. So the old man doesn't have to come back. We allow him back, but he doesn't have to. He's dead. And our new life has been raised with Christ, symbolized in baptism. That's what baptism symbolizes. Dead to the old man. Alive in Christ. And the, the perfect illustration of this is the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, he has two names in Scripture. One is the Apostle Paul, and the other one is Saul of Tarsus. Very different individuals. Saul of Tarsus and the Apostle Paul look nothing like each other. Yet the same physical person. And that's the point. That when you're baptized within Christ, the old person is dead. Saul of Tarsus was no more. And you and I need to believe that, that when we trust in Jesus Christ, that old person that continues to haunt us, right, and tell us, I'm still here, I still own you, you'll always revert back to me. It's a lie. You have the power of Christ Jesus, and he has killed the old man. You can walk in newness of life, just like the Apostle Paul. 
Next, it says, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Before Christ, things weren't just dire for us. We were dead. You guys ever heard of the show, The Walking Dead? There's a big zombie craze. There's a big zombie craze in this country, right? Everybody wants to talk about zombies and think about zombies. Um, this is kind of an illustration for what was going on. We were alive physically, but dead spiritually. Moving about, living our lives, but according to God in the spiritual realm, flatlined. Dead. That, I mean, that's dire, right? That's about as dire as you can get. And then... Christ came into the scene. He forgave all of our sins. He canceled the record of debt, which stood against us with its legal demands, and he nailed it to the cross. And now we're alive forevermore because our debt has been paid. That debt, that sinful debt that you and I owed to God, which was amassing and accumulating over and over and over every day, every week, every year of our lives, Christ, one ounce, one instant, took it on the cross himself and got rid of it forgave all of our sins. The dead is now gone. It's been wiped clean. We are no longer the walking dead. We are alive. We are forgiven. And we can walk and live and follow Christ as we were meant to. The last thing he says is he disarmed the rulers and authorities. I love this one. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. It's like a snake with no venom and no teeth. It's still kind of scary looking. If it was in your house, you'd be a little alarmed. But there's no teeth and no venom. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. So whatever the devil says he can do to you, he can't. It's like a bear with nerf claws. You know? Uh, he, he took the venom away. He took the sting away from the devil. So the devil lies to you every single day. I can hurt you. I own you. I'm powerful. You'll never get over sin. Lie, 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 lie. Because the, the Christ totally disarmed him. And the devil knows that. The only thing he can actually do is lie enough to us so we'll walk away. Because he can't grab us. He can't bite us. He can't devour us. But you know what he can do? Is distract, deceive and devalue Christ, so we will eventually make the choice to walk away from Christ. So that's his game plan. Lie, lie, lie. Very quickly, let's look at the application here. I told you we were going to come back to this. This application for verses 6 and 7 is the point. Therefore, based on everything we've learned, as you receive Christ Jesus, and that's number one, if you haven't received him yet, that's your only step right now. You need to receive him. You need to believe in him. You need to turn from your sins unto Jesus Christ. If you haven't done this, please come talk to me, and I will show you how you can have that hope. But he says, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, assuming he's talking to Christians, so walk in him, obey him, follow him, depend upon him, devote yourself to him, remain faithful to him, Rooted in him, firm in your faith in Christ, you cannot be easily moved away from him, which means it takes a true understanding of Christ, it takes a true renewed heart that loves him, but not just rooted, built up in him. You're continuing to learn, continuing to grow, continuing to move, continuing to obey. Established in the faith, your faith which God tests and tries and makes stronger. It says in 1 Peter, what he does to our faith is he burns the impurities out of it. Which sounds harsh. It's like, God, really? Do I need the fire? Yes, you do. Because the fire actually makes you stronger. More pure. So that you're established in your faith. Not easily moved from Christ. Ready and willing to follow Christ to the ends of the earth. And then the last thing. Abounding in thanksgiving toward Christ. I thank Christ, but I don't know if I have yet abounded in thanksgiving. Always on the offense to thank and praise the Lord for his goodness and grace in your life. Always on the offense for thanksgiving. 
Thanksgiving while you're at church, Thanksgiving while you're in your car leaving, Thanksgiving as you get home, Thanksgiving this afternoon, Thanksgiving tonight, Thanksgiving when you wake up in the morning. And you know what that Thanksgiving does? It fights the devil because it tells him you're wrong. Look at all Christ has done. Look at all he is doing. Look at all he's promised to do. Resist him. So lastly, what will it take for you to live for Christ alone with no additions, no subtractions? Christ alone. It's a beautiful thing to sing about, right? Christ alone. But man, that is a life. Can a life back that up? Christ alone. Not just for the pastor and the minister. For the person who's been redeemed. What would it take for you to live for Christ alone? And second of all, do you really believe that Jesus is the treasure of treasures? Do you really believe he's the treasure of treasures? Because if you do, you will surrender everything. You will make very tough choices to follow him. Because you'll believe he's the treasure. And then I ask you to make a plan. Make a plan, a, a, an honest, small plan at the beginning. Let's, I told Janine, we started working out the other day, exercising. And I said, Janine, you know what we need to do? Start very small. <laughs> Whatever we want to do, let's do like one-fourth of that. <laughs> because as we build muscle, as we do it over and over and over, we'll actually get to the place where we can do it all the time. Well, this is the idea. If you want to treasure Christ, start honest and start small. But do it every day. And then build upon that every day. As you get stronger. As you get more disciplined. Because Jesus is worthy of it. All right. Literally the last thing. Go to Matthew 13. Matthew 13, 44 to 46. And I just want to think about treasuring Christ in this aspect. Matthew 13, 44 to 46 is the smallest parable Jesus ever taught. Matthew 13, 44 to 46. Listen to what it says. I'm not going to expound on it. I'm just going to read it. The kingdom of heaven, or you could say Christ, is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all he has and buys the field. Verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all he had and bought the pearl. Jesus is the treasure hidden in the field. Jesus is the pearl of great value. But you need to believe that. Not just hear it, but believe that Christ is the true treasure. Because when you do, you'll sell all you have to follow him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the things that we need to hear, which sometimes are hard things. And I hope I represented those things properly. But um, I don't want the perspective to be knocking down tonight. I don't want us to be built up in Christ. That's the whole point. For us to find a renewed hope, a renewed joy, a renewed treasure in Christ Jesus. And to say, all to Jesus I surrender because he's worthy of it. And because he's treasure. And when the devil comes knocking, telling us, I got better stuff. Over here, come look here. Come live for this. We'll tell him to get lost. We'll start quoting scripture. We'll start telling him about the treasure hidden in the field and the pearl of great value. Thank you for Christ Jesus. Honor him with our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.